Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Again, good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through your son, Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of a new calendar year. So happy new year to everyone. It's also not the first Sunday of the church year. Uh, that happened over a month ago at the beginning of Advent. Advent precedes Christmas tide. Christmas is not simply a day, it's also a season. Advent is a season to prepare us for Christmas, to celebrate the incarnation of God coming to us as one of us for us in order to rescue us. And Epiphany, which began yesterday, the third season of the church year, it works out the implications of the incarnation. It answers the question, so what? So what is the point? What is the the import? Why does it matter? What difference does it make in our life? And the first thing that Epiphany says to us is change, that the possibility of change for us is real, real, significant life change, which we all know is very hard and actually quite rare. I'm curious how many of you know who Tupac Shakur is. Raise your hand. Show of hands. It's not as good as the first service. Anyways, uh, His murder was one of the most high-profile murders of the 1990s. He's arguably the most influential rap artist ever. He was gunned down in a uh, drive-by shooting, life imitating art, in Las Vegas in 1996, 28 years ago. But no one was ever arrested until this fall. Uh, Documentaries have been made. Books have been written. Finally, this fall, someone was arrested and charged with his murder. And I tell you that because one of his most famous songs is entitled Changes. It's pretty bleak but very honest. It begins, I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living or should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor. And even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts. So I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Then he goes on to lament the racism that he's known throughout his entire life, as well as the poverty, the police brutality that's well-documented and known about 
Los Angeles in the 1990s, as well as the crack epidemic and gang violence and the way that all people, ourselves included, justify behavior that we know to be wrong. We know to be damaging to others, but we justify it in order to keep on doing it. And then in a very similar fashion to John the Baptist in our gospel reading, in a prophetic voice, he decries that this dramatic change that we all know that we need, it's not possible. The refrain of the song is, that's just the way it is. All the wrong in us, all the wrong in the world around us, it's just the way it is. So do you believe that change is possible this morning? Do you believe that personal change, change for you, it's possible, or societal change, change in in the lives and and, and dynamics around you in your own heart, in your own life. Do you believe it's possible? Do you believe it's needed this morning? Did you make any New Year's resolutions? I did. My resolution is to stop snoring this year. And so I'm taping my mouth shut while I sleep. So you know, it's a thing. You look like a hostage victim while you're sleeping and terrifying your family, but it works. And so this is what I've done. I like New Year's resolutions because it puts everyone in the mindset of change, at least for a few weeks till those resolutions fail. And then it impresses upon us the significant difficulty of real, true change. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. And that's the hope of epiphany that we in Christ can change because God has come and taken on human flesh. The world can be changed. So where can we find this change that we need? Three points this morning, the claim, the place, and the power. First of all, the claim that brings change. Mark begins here, as you'll notice, his entire gospel with an introductory sentence, a brief one, but then a longer quote from the Old Testament, chapter 40 of Isaiah. And you may know that Mark has an incredible economy of scale in his writing. He always gets very, very quickly to what he wants to say with as few words as possible. His favorite and most repeated word throughout his gospel is this Greek word, uthus, which means immediately. And we feel that pace immediately in verse one when he writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's probably helpful for us to translate this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, because Christ is not his last name. You'd be surprised how often I've been asked that throughout my years in ministry. It's not a name at all. It's a title. It's become a name for us because we so closely associate it with Jesus. But the word means anointed. To be anointed means to be set apart for some particular special purpose. And the role here is that of the king. When a king in Israel was enthroned, he was anointed with oil. And so we could read this, the beginning of the good news story, beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the king, the son of God. And son of God here is not a reference to divinity at all. It's actually, in fact, another reference to the Old Testament king of Israel. He was also called the son of God. And so Mark is being a little bit redundant here. And when Mark is redundant, when he's repetitious, we should take notice because it's actually very rare. And here he does that. He stacks up two different titles, two different references for the king of Israel, begging the question of us, do we want a king? Because if you celebrated Christmas, and I assume that most of you did, you celebrated the birth of a king. Yes, the birth of a king who was born as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger with all of that cute and sentimental and nostalgic stuff. But epiphany ends any undue Christmas sentimentality and insists the birth of the one that you celebrated is the king. And as king, he comes to claim every aspect of your life. 
and every aspect of the life and culture around us. So again, do you want a king? And maybe more to the point, do you want a king and the changes that he brings? And to be honest, most don't. But Mark tells us much more here than just that Jesus is a king because he goes on with this quote here from Isaiah chapter 40. And in Isaiah chapter 40, God tells his people through the Old Testament prophet that he's going to come. He himself, he's going to stop sending prophets like Isaiah. He's going to stop raising up human kings to rule on his behalf and he himself will come. But Isaiah 40 says that before he comes, he's going to send a messenger before him in order to tell Israel that he's coming and to get them ready. And so Mark quotes that chapter. And then if you notice here, he identifies John the Baptist with that messenger who's going to precede God. And so who does that make Jesus? It makes Jesus God. That's what Mark is saying. Not just a king, but God, Israel's God. Yahweh, that's the name for God used in Isaiah chapter 40, the personal covenantal name for God. It was God's marriage name with Israel, the very name that he gave himself when he described himself to Moses at the burning bush. And you may know that that name to ancient Jews was so holy, considered so holy, they wouldn't even say it, but they wouldn't write it. When they thought the name Yahweh, they would write Adonai, or they would say Jehovah. And Mark is saying here, this is who Jesus is. He's Yahweh. He's the one whose name we won't even say. And he's come to us in human flesh. It would have been utterly mind-boggling for Jews. And Mark is a Jew. And most of his original readers would have been Jews. They didn't have a framework for this. They didn't have a, a framework for this kind of claim, nor the depth of change that a claim like this demanded. So again, do you want a king, a king who is God, a king who is God in human form, who has come close, who has come near to us all, to you even? I'll never forget, I read John Stott years ago, and I forget in a book or a sermon, saying that in the scriptures, there's only three responses that people have to God coming close or near to them. One response is that they run from him. They try to get as far away from possible, as possible from him. So think Jonah, and, and the, he's the running prophet. Or think Peter even. Jesus shows up and Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So people run from God. Or they try and kill God. That's what happens in Matthew chapter two with Herod. He, as you well know, tries to kill, does kill all the newborn baby boys in Bethlehem because he's trying to kill God who has come close because he wants to remain king and in charge of his own life and the lives of others around him. So they try to run from God or they try to kill God or they love him and they worship him and they turn everything in their life, every aspect of their life over to him. So which are you this morning? Because the claim of the incarnation is that revolutionary. It is that life altering. And here's where that claim becomes revolutionary for most people. Point two, the place of change. Two different times here, you'll notice in this quote that the word wilderness is used in verse three and verse four. And then verse five tells us that everyone from Jerusalem, Judea, they were going out from the cities, from the villages, out into the wilderness to John because that's where he's baptizing. And that in the wilderness is the place, generally speaking, where people meet God in the Bible. It's the history of Israel. Genesis chapter 32, you remember, Jacob wrestles with God and he does so in the wilderness. 
And then Moses, he goes out from Egypt out into the Egyptian wilderness around in the Sinai wilderness. And that's where God appears to him in the burning bush. And then after the Exodus, the people of Israel received the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And then after the 10 commandments, they wander around the wilderness for 40 years. And then even King David, he's always on the run from the Philistines and from Saul, and he's running from them in the wilderness. So what's the wilderness? It's not a forest. That may be what we think when we hear that word, but it's just the opposite, in fact, because forest is a place that teems with life. Everything grows in the forest. And there's things to eat in the forest that grow. There's animals to hunt in the forest. There's trees and other things to make shelter with. There's water to drink in the forest. That's not a wilderness. In the Bible, wilderness probably is best translated desert because it's a lifeless place where nothing grows. There are very few animals and the animals there are not ones that you hunt. They're ones that hunt you. And there's very little shelter there. There's no water to drink. So the wilderness is the place where you can't stay alive unless God intervenes. That is what Israel learned throughout their history. Out in the wilderness after the Exodus, the very first thing that happens is that they run out of water. And so God has Moses strike the rock so that water can flow. And then immediately after that, they run out of food. And so God sends manna, this bread-like food, every morning with the morning dew in order to feed them for 40 years. And here's the point. The point is, is that our entire world spiritually is what a desert wilderness is physically. It's where eventually all the wells run dry and all the bread finally turns moldy and putrid, but that's where people meet God. He's most often there when he gives these epiphanies and reveals himself. Whenever whatever the the well that you've been drinking from runs dry and whatever bread that you've been trying to feed your soul with turns sickening and moldy in your hands. And so do you know that place this morning? It's a painful place. It's a place of thorns. It's a lonely place. Because in a desert, a desert can't support large communities of people. It's why large communities don't live in the desert. And so again, do you know the wilderness? A wilderness experience, it will shake you to the very foundations of your life because you'll have been caught doing something that you never thought that you would have done. Or maybe you haven't been caught. You know that you've done this or you're doing this and just the the knowledge of it is too weighty for your soul to bear. Or you're sick, you're diagnosed with something that will very likely not be healed, could very likely take your life. Or it's a loved one, a child, a parent. Your, your child is in the hospital, something along those lines. Or you're not sick, but you're addicted. Something has you. Drinking or sex or, or spending or dieting, something has you. Or someone's wronged you and you just can't get past it. You're becoming angrier and angrier and bitter and so very insecure and unable and unwilling to trust or entrust yourself ever again because of that which those persons or that person did to you. Regardless of what it is, you know that you're going to die spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally, physically, even you know you're going to die without God. You're beginning to realize my career can't help here. My family can't help. My parents can't fix this. My accomplishments, my money, my beauty, my popularity, my fame won't help. Having great kids won't help. Having a great marriage won't help. 
Taking some time off, getting away is not going to fix this. When you begin to realize that and that all those things that I just mentioned and more, they're not going to assuage your hurt. They're not going to quell your sadness or remove your shame or provide you with the joy and the happiness that you know that you were created for. When you begin to realize that, that all these wells are running dry and the bread that you've been feeding yourself is beginning to turn moldy, then you'll know you're in the wilderness. And as bad as it is, it's a necessary good because it's then and there that you can meet Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, whom John says is mighty, mighty to save. And who also he says is worthy. Those are the two adjectives used of him here. Mighty to save and worthy of your life. And he can baptize you with real change. Which brings me to my final point, point three, the power for change. One of my favorite characters in all of literature is the whiskey priest in Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory. It's a loosely historical fiction based in the 1930s in Mexico where the government officially tried to forcibly end all Christianity and Christian practice. And in the state of Tabasco where the novel is set, every priest has either been imprisoned or forced to marry or shot. I would probably go with option two, but forced to marry, imprisoned or shot, except one, And he's this whiskey priest who's on the run, hunted by these government authorities, fleeing from village to village. The soles of his shoes are completely worn out. The novel is one long wilderness experience for him. And he's not a hero, not in the classic sense. He's more like the modern anti-hero because he's an utter and complete moral disaster. All of the money that he is given by villagers to support him as as he runs, he just uses on booze. That's why he's called the whiskey priest. He performs mass, but rarely prays otherwise, except when he prays to get caught. And he's even broken his vow of celibacy and fathered a child whom he loves desperately. And really this little girl is the only reason that he himself finds for wanting to stay alive. But something has him and something continues to push him forward and to carry him along. Some power and this power, it reveals and complete and and unimaginable glory, the very glory of God in and through him because of such the mess that he is and what the world around him is like. And this is what Graham Greene says, listen. He says, how often the priest had heard the same confession. Man was so limited. He hadn't even the ingenuity to invent a new vice. The animals knew as much. But it was for this world that Christ had died. The more evil you saw and heard about you, the greater the glory lay around Christ's death. It was too easy to die for what was good or beautiful, for home or children or civilization. It needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. And that's what Mark is saying from the very beginning of his gospel, that, that this very death, that Jesus the Christ that he is on his way to die for his people. You notice that those words, the way, used two different times here. Anytime, again, Mark's a very precise writer. Anytime he uses those words, the way, in reference to Jesus, it's always in reference to his way to the cross. Especially in chapters eight through 11, which is the travel narrative of Mark, where Jesus has set his face like flint, his face in the direction of Jerusalem, because he is so intent to go there and to die for our sins. Because we're so lost because we're so half-hearted and so corrupt and we can't save ourselves and we won't save ourselves. And so there God goes to die for us. And on the cross, Jesus went out into the wilderness. What did he wear on his head? 
thorns. And then what did he say there in this, in this place of loneliness, the cross, all by himself? Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why am I all alone? Because I'm in the wilderness. And then finally, he cried out, I thirst, because he thirsted for the well of his father's presence and his father's love, and that thirst killed him. And it did so for you and for me out of his unimaginable and inquenchable love for us, the half-hearted and the corrupt. And that's what Jesus' baptism points us to. Because remember, ancient people didn't think about water the way that we do. When we think about water, we think about recreation. We think about swimming pools and beaches and things like that. When they thought, thought about water, they thought about judgment. Because of all the Old Testament water stories, the flood, the exodus, Jonah, they're all drowning stories where, where people go under the water of God's judgment. But also, paradoxically, somehow, they also, on the other side of this water, there's new life. And so the question is, which is it? Are these stories stories of death and judgment or stories of new life? What is water a sign of? Is it a sign of judgment and death or new life? And what's the answer always to questions like that? Yes. And how? Because of Jesus. Because he was born in human form and he went under the waters of God's judgment for us and for our sin so that the waters of our baptism might be waters of new life through which he gives to us that which he receives at his baptism, which is the Holy Spirit, so that we might change. Because of Jesus, and here's where I close. If you've been baptized into his name, into his death and resurrection, as Paul says here in Romans chapter six, then you have the power to live a new life, a new changed life. No longer half-hearted and corrupt, but wholehearted and true and good and holy. That is what Paul says in Romans 6 and Romans 8. His emphasis there is that Jesus didn't simply die to forgive you, but he was raised to change you as your king by giving you the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says, and then I'll close. Do you not know? Apparently some did not know. So do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He died for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So you're forgiven. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you believe in Christ and follow after him, you have been forgiven. And we were buried spiritually, therefore, with Christ by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised, we too, now in our life, we might walk or live in newness of life. And he goes on to say, you're no longer enslaved by your sin. That old life of, of sin and foolishness and selfishness, it is dead as dead as Jesus was on the cross. And when that old life rears up its head again and begins to act as though it's alive, kill it. Put it to death. Resist it. Stop. Because you can. You can change. You have the power to change through faith in Christ and in and through the baptism that you have been baptized with. When you're in the wilderness, you'll know that you need it. And it's there for you. He is there for you. Jesus is there for you in the wilderness through his Holy Spirit. He's there for the, the friends of ours from seminary who tragically lost their 21-year-old daughter this past week through this mysterious seizure. Her funeral was yesterday. He's there for my youngest son's friend, Andrew, who died 10 days ago and his service will be here at All Saints on Friday, which I'll lead. But he's also there for you and whatever you face. He's there for you through his word. So read his word. This year, read, read God's word. He's there for you in and through worship. Be here, not just as a New Year's resolution, but throughout the year. 
He's there for you in and through prayer. So pray this year. Make that a resolution. He's there for you in and through the fellowship of the church, the other Christians that you need. So be connected and worship with us here, but be connected and worship and engage with us beyond worship in the lives and the relationships of others whom you need. Make those your resolutions this year and change. Be changed because the claim and the place and the power are yours in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that all that you have promised in your word would be true for us in our lives because we would lay hold of it by your grace. Father, may we believe that it's true and may we live as though it is such and may you impress upon us your great and unimaginable love for us and through your son in whose name we pray, amen.